Today's read, Asada, an autobiography written by Asada Shakur. Chapter 6. My mother and stepfather broke up, and my mother, my sister, and I moved to a new apartment in a housing complex in South Jamaica near New York Boulevard and Fox. One side was the projects, and the other side was the co-op where we lived, but they looked about the same to me. Compared to Jamaica, Parsons Gardens, where we had lived, was a little black dot. South Jamaica, Jamaica, Hollis, Bricktown, St. Albans, Springfield Gardens, South Ozone, etc., were all joined together to make up a black city. You could live your whole life in Jamaica, and the only time you'd see a white face was when you shopped on Jamaica Avenue or when the insurance man came around. At one time, Jamaica was all white. Black people had moved out to the island to escape the ghettos of Harlem and Brooklyn. They bought old houses at exorbitant prices only to find that within a few years, their quote-unquote nice neighborhoods had turned into the crime-ridden, drug-ridden, poverty-stricken places they had run from. I love Jamaica, and I was just starting to get into the heat of it, the beat of it, and to know my way around when my mother and I had one of our terrible arguments. I don't even remember what the argument was about, but I was hard-headed, stubborn, and under the impression that a grave injustice had been done to me. The next day, I got up, packed my clothes, and headed straight for the village. Greenwich Village was where artists and musicians and all kinds of weird people were supposed to live. I was fascinated by the idea of beatniks and bohemians, even though I had never met any. I figured that if I belonged any place, it must be the village. I walked around with my suitcase until I was exhausted. I remember thinking that people here didn't look that different from anybody else. I found a place to check my suitcase and spent the rest of the day going around door to door asking people if they had any jobs available. Most didn't even look up at me. They just gave a flat no. At the end of the day, I was tired, disgusted, and hungry. I had nowhere to live and not the slightest idea what I was going to do next. I went back for my suitcase, but the place was closed. After that, I just walked aimlessly until I reached a little park. I sat down on a bench, tired as hell and unable to take another step. After a while, a little white guy with bumps on his face sat down next to me and started talking. I didn't understand half the things he said, but he seemed nice enough. When he asked me if I wanted to go to a restaurant across the street with him, I gladly accepted. I was starving. It was an Italian restaurant, and the scent in the air was heavenly. I ordered enough to feed a mule. The guy talked about all these people I didn't know and about his job. He kept saying people on his job were conspiring to get him fired. I worked there for eight years, and they didn't even give me any notice. He told me over and over that the company he had worked for had stolen two of his inventions and patented them, and that when he tried to get paid for them and tried to get credit for his ideas, the company tried to get rid of him. What did they do, I asked. They did everything. They stole my files and my papers, and they spread rumors about me. He said he was some kind of engineer. I should have never trusted them, he kept saying. You can trust anybody. 
When the food came, I ate like I had spent a lifetime starving. Doesn't this food taste funny to you? The guy asked. I tasted some more and it was good. There's nothing wrong with mine, I told him. There's something wrong with this food, he said loudly. What did they do to my food? The waiter came and tried to calm the guy down. I don't understand, the waiter said. But if you'd like, I'll bring you another plate. Although the guy said it was better, he still thought it tasted a little funny. To change the subject, I told him a sad story about my mother being in the hospital and that I had nowhere to stay. Oh, you can stay at my place, he said. Then, seeing how I was looking at him, he added, I have an extra bed. No funny business? No funny business, he promised. He paid the check and we left. His apartment was a tiny one-bedroom unit with a dirty kitchen and a green, moldy-looking rug. The living room was neat and sterile. There was a plain brown couch that turned into a bed. I asked him for something to sleep in and plopped down into the bed. He kept talking, but I closed my eyes and pretended to sleep. After a while, he went into his bedroom and shut off the light. I woke up during the night to go to the bathroom, stumbling around, disoriented until I finally found it. When I came out of the bathroom, I went into the kitchen for some water. While I was there, the guy came in. His face was all puffed up and red. What are you looking for? Some water. Oh, no, you're not, he screeched. You've been creeping around this house looking for something. What? I asked. You're crazy. Oh, no, my dear. That's what they want me to think. I'm not crazy in the least. What were you looking for? Who sent you? You didn't find anything, did you? Well, you can tell them. I haven't invented anything else for them to steal. I don't know what you're talking about. Nobody sent me no place, and I wasn't looking for anything. Oh, no? You were just going for a little moonlight stroll? Do you think I'm some kind of fool? I took you in, off the street, out of kindness, and here you try and deceive me. Deceive me. They really fooled me this time. I never thought they'd send a nigger, a nigger spy. Your mama is a nigger, I told him, and you're a crazy son of a bitch. I threw on my clothes as I cursed him out. Spy, spy, he kept saying. Your mother's a spy, and you can drop dead as far as I'm concerned. I slammed the door and walked out into the early morning. The sun was beginning to come up. I walked until I found a drugstore open and ordered tea and an English muffin. I bought a toothbrush, toothpaste, and some makeup so that I would look older. I was going to get a job if it killed me. I got my suitcase, found a bathroom to wash up in, changed clothes, and checked the suitcase again. I bought a couple of newspapers. This time I was going to be to be systematic about it. I saw an ad for a waitress and counter girl. There was something I that was something I knew I could do. The place was in downtown Brooklyn. I hopped on the first train in that direction and got there about 8:30 in the morning. The cafeteria was in a factory building and was solely for the factory workers. The manager had black and white hair and was big, fat, and sloppy. He wasn't so anxious to hire me at first, so I told him a sob story about coming from down south to help my mother, who was in the hospital, and that I needed a job as soon as possible. Finally, after looking me up and down, he hired me and said I could start right then and there. I was grinning from ear to ear. I was supposed to spend the morning making salads and sandwiches and other things for lunchtime. But around 10 o'clock, all these men started coming for coffee break. The manager had me running around like crazy, toasting bread, 
buttering buns and getting them in their orders. Move faster, move faster, he kept telling me. Every time he told me to move faster, I tried until it seemed that it wasn't humanly possible for anyone to have moved faster. Then I noticed he was always brushing against me. His hands were always accidentally touching my behind. I'd move his hand away, but that only seemed to make him bolder. Every time I bent over to get something out of the freezer or off the food shelves, he would try to slide his hands up my dress. After a while, I began slapping his hands away. This, too, seemed to make him bolder. Finally, I told him in a nice, quiet voice, Would you please keep your hands off me? Would you keep them to yourself? What are you talking about, he said, acting surprised. I ain't done nothing to you. As the day went on, he accelerated his shouting at me. Can't you move any faster, he would yell. Get that lead out of your ass. He stopped putting his hands on me for a while, but in about an hour, he was right back to his old tricks. He acted like it was some kind of joke or something. I didn't think it was funny worth a damn. Lunchtime was super busy, and I was moving super fast. After lunch, we started getting ready for afternoon coffee break, and after that, we started getting ready for dinner. Then it was from 4.30 to 6.30, and 7 was quitting time. When dinner time came, I was tired and miserable. I needed the job desperately, but the manager was driving me wild putting his hands all over me. When I told him to stop, he would grin, throw his hands in the air, and say, What am I doing? What am I doing? Then he started a new trick. He'd pull the elastic of my panties through the uniform and let it pop like a rubber band. Stop it, I yelled. Just stop it. Stop what? What am I doing? By the time dinner was over, I knew I couldn't take it anymore. Bad as I needed the job, I couldn't take that big fat pig's hands all over me. Just before I was ready to go home, I told him, Look, if you can't keep your hands to yourself, I'll quit. I can't take it anymore. What do you mean you'll quit? You're fired. You got lead in your ass, and you don't know how to treat your boss. Now get the hell out of here. Just give me my money and I will. I ain't going to pay you shit, he said, because you ain't did shit. Look, mister, you won't pay me my money. I worked hard, and I want my money. Come back at the end of the week. No, I want my money now. I need it now. You ain't getting nothing now. I told you, come back at the end of the week. No, you're giving me my money now. I want my money. Well, you ain't getting it. I'll call the cops on you, I bluffed. I'll call the cops on you, he said, if you don't get your ass out of here. You better give me my money, I repeated, looking wild and about ready to jump out a real bag. Some people from the factory came in and stood at the back of the cafeteria looking. Keep your voice down, he said, acting like he was going to be cooperative and pay me. I'll tell you what, you come in the back with me now, and I'll pay you for an extra day. I'll even let you keep your job, and if you're good... I'll even give you a little extra change. I'm not going any damn way with you. Just give me my money. Now, why do you want to be like that, he asked, putting his hands on my shoulder. I was hot and fit to be tied. Get your hands off me, I yelled. You don't want nobody to know what kind of dog you are? Well, I'm going to tell everybody. If you don't give me my money, I'm going to make you wish you had. I'm going to tell everybody what you are. I started to walk to where people were working in the factory park. All right, all right, he said. Here's your goddamn money. Just get the hell out of here. The people who had been standing in the back moved up.
closer to see what was going on. The man went to the register and counted out my money. I was dead tired and felt like a fool, but at the same time, I, at the same time, I felt kind of good inside. I was still in the same boat, but I was $13 richer, and I had enough self-respect not to let any old lecherous white man feel up and down my body. I had enough money altogether to rent a cheap hotel room. I got my suitcase and checked into a hotel. I think it was the Howell, the Hotel Albert. After I had hung up my clothes and taken a shower, I decided to get something to eat. Downstairs in the lobby, there was this big, tall, black woman dressed to kill. She had black hair with silver streaks running through it, long, false eyelashes, and a lot of makeup. Well, look at the baby, she said, looking straight at me. Please tell me how you wound up in this joint. Are you straight from Alabama, darling? Are you going, honey? Where are you going, honey? I just looked at her. Do you speak, darling? Can you talk? Where are you going, honey? I'm going out to eat, I said a little weary. Where are you going to eat, love? I don't know. Well, come with me, honey. We can eat together. I'm having a starvation attack. I just stood there looking at her. Well, come on, love. You don't want me to die of malnutrition now, do you? Do you like Chinese food? Yes, I told her. Wondering why she was talking, taking all of this interest in me and wondering how she knew I was new at the hotel. We walked around until we came to a Chinese restaurant. The whole time she talked nonstop. Suddenly, I remembered how little money I had. I had intended to eat a hot dog or something. Look, I told her, I don't have enough money to go in there. This place looks expensive and I'm kind of on the broke side. Maybe another time I'll come eat with you. Listen, love, she said, I didn't drag you all this way to eat alone. I hate to eat alone, so you're just stuck with my company. It looks like I'm going to have to treat your broke ass to dinner. I was extremely grateful. Miss Shirley, that's what she called herself, was one hell of a talker. She sounded sophisticated and country at the same time. She was from Georgia, but she had been in New York for a long time. She had lived in the village for a long time, too, although she said she was a gypsy. I ordered something like chop suey, the cheapest thing on the menu. What is you trying to do, honey, she said. Make me sick? Look, you sit there with your ears open and let me do the ordering. She ordered all this stuff, and when it came, we feasted. There was so much we could barely finish it. That's better, honey. Now, mother can join the living. The waiter came and asked if we wanted anything else. If I can't have you, Miss Shirley said with a wink, I'd like to check. The waiter, a tall, thin Chinese man, blushed and hurried away. This is one bold chick, I remember thinking. How long is your place rented for, Miss Shirley asked, until tomorrow. What are you going to do after that? I'll find another job, I told her. Then I told her about my job at the cafeteria. She laughed her head off. Well, honey, she asked me, what in the hell are you running from or what in the hell are you running to? I told her the sad tale about my mother in the hospital. Do you actually expect me to believe that mess? I swore up and down that it was true. I ain't no fool, honey, and I've been out in these streets long enough to know that you're running from something, and if you don't want to tell me, that's your business, but I like you, and I'll try to help you if I can. I was grateful, and I didn't know what to say, so I didn't say anything. Look, I've got this friend that works on Bleecker Street. He wants to take some time off to hang out with his friend, but he doesn't want to lose his job. You could work in his place until he comes back. Fine, I said. 
I was down for anything, well, almost. We went to the cafe and a skinny white dude came up to us. Sit down and rest yourselves. I'll be back in a minute. We sat down at a little round table. You want some espresso? The guy asked. Sure, Miss Shirley said. He brought two little cups of black stuff. I took one sip and thought I was going to choke. Miss Shirley cracked up. Well, I can see that you're not initiated. I'm going to have to do something about your education. I arranged to take the guy's job for four days, and he showed me what I had to do. If you forget anything or have any questions, ask the sailor, he said, pointing to a man with tattoos up and down his arms. I was to begin work the next afternoon at four. I still didn't know how I was going to pay my rent at the hotel for the next few days because I wouldn't be paid for my work at the cafe until the guy came back from his vacation. I told Miss Shirley what I was thinking. I'll talk to Freddie, she said, and see if he'll let my good friend have a little credit. If not, you can come up to my place and sleep on the floor. We went back to the hotel and found Freddie. He didn't want to give me any credit. Miss Shirley kept haggling. How much money do you have, she asked me. $15. Well, give me 10 and I'll lend you the rest so you can rent a room for a week. I gave her the money, and Freddie told me I had to move to another room, which was fine with me. The room was tiny, but... At least it had a bathroom, and I had somewhere to stay for the rest of the week. I was grateful as hell for Miss Shirley. Well, she told me, you get a good night's sleep. Mother has to go to work. Where do you work? Anywhere I have to, she said. Anywhere I can. I was dog tired, and the bed was like an oasis. I woke up the next afternoon. It was almost one o'clock. I took a shower, got dressed, and went to find something to eat. Then I went back to the hotel and knocked on Miss Shirley's door. She opened the door with a razor in her hand. I almost fainted. She was shaving her face. Miss Shirley was a man. When she saw my reaction, she fell out laughing. You got a lot to learn, sugar. You got a lot to learn. We both sat there laughing up a storm. Somehow it was funny as hell. I went to work early that afternoon. The job wasn't bad and I could eat all I wanted, which meant I didn't have to buy dinner. The tips weren't that much, but I'd be able to live on them until the guy came back. Any black woman, particularly practically anywhere in America, can tell you about being approached, propositioned, and harassed by white men. Many consider all black women potential prostitutes. In the village, this phenomenon was ten times worse than anywhere else. It was almost impossible to go from one corner to the next without some white man hissing at you, following you, or jingling the money in his pockets. One morning in the park, I met a couple about my age from Harlem who had run away from home and were now living in a room in the village. I told them that I had run away too, and we became instant comrades. We got into a discussion about how white men are always approaching black women. Yeah, they giggled. But we got something for the ass. Yeah, I asked. Yeah, we fixed them right up. How, I asked. Then they told me. The Murphy game was their game. They told me how it worked, and I fell out laughing. I thought it was a brilliant scheme. You want to try it? I know them old dig you. I was anxious to try this new scheme because it was big money, and I would be able to pay Miss Shirley back and get a real place of my own. The first night after my job was over, I met Pat and Ronnie in the park. 
Pat and I were the bait and Ronnie was the protection. We were all to walk separately on different sides of the street so that we could see each other. I had dressed up and put on makeup to look older. About five minutes after we started walking, a white man came up to me. He said he liked the way I walked and wanted to take me someplace. I'm on my way to a party, I told him. I'm going to be, it's going to be a real hot party. Yeah, what kind of party is it gonna be? What kind of party would you like it to be? A party for two, he said. I know a place where they've got some very nice private rooms and they're not too expensive. It's a private club. You've got to join first. How much does it cost? 15 for the room, 15 to join the club, and 15 for the babysitter. You don't look old enough to have a kid. The babysitter's for my little sister. We argued about the price. He thought it was too high. I kept telling him how he was getting a deal and that once he joined, he would be a member for a year and could go there anytime he wanted and get some action. Finally, he agreed to pay. When we got to the building, I told him to give me the money so I could go upstairs and pay the people. By the way, I said, would you tell me what kind of work you do? These people are very particular about who joins their club. I work for a bank. I could see from his face he was lying. I'll be right back. Don't you go nowhere. I ran up the stairs and opened the door to the roof. Carefully, I closed it behind me. Then I went over about ten roofs until I came to the one I was supposed to come down from. I tried the door. It wouldn't budge. Somebody had locked it. I went to the next roof. Luckily, the door opened. I ran down the stairs and came out around the corner from where the man was standing. Hurriedly, I walked to where I was supposed to meet Pat and Ronnie. How did it go, they asked. Easy as pie, I answered. Okay, let's do another one. I was scared to try another one because I was scared I would run into the man again. We can go up around 14th Street. We've got another building staked out around there. Okay, I told them, but let's check it out first. I explained about the door that wouldn't open. We got to the new place, checked it out, then went to 14th Street. In a matter of 20 minutes, Pat and I had caught a fish. I was worried to death we would bump into each other. I rushed my man into the building, got the money, and hurried to the meeting place. I waited and waited. It seemed like an eternity until they came. Pat had seen me with my man and had the good sense to go to a different building than the one I took my man to. We were all in high spirits. See how easy it is, Pat asked me. Yeah, it's a breeze. We split up the money. We had each made $45. I rushed back to the hotel. Miss Shirley was there and we went up to her room for a drink. I felt like a millionaire. I had the money I had made working in the cafe, plus the $45. I whipped out my bankroll and paid Miss Shirley back. Now, girl, I know you ain't got no rich uncle. How'd you get all that money? I told her everything. I thought I was so slick. Girl, is you crazy? Do you know what one of these men will do to you if they find you in the street? Girl, these people out in this street don't even give a damn about you. This street will eat your ass alive. Honey, I know what I'm talking about. You done run away, ain't you? Yeah, I told her I ran away. Mm, I knew it all the time. Well, honey, I can't make you go home. If I tried, you'd only run away again. But you're wasting your time and your life out here. These people don't care nothing about you. All they want to do is suck your blood. You a smart girl. What you need to do is go home and finish school. I'm never going home. Well, if you insist on staying out here in these streets, you better start acting like you got some sense. Don't you never let nobody use you and make a fool out of you. 
What if one of those men had been a crazy man and followed you upstairs? What if the other door had been locked and you hadn't been able to get out? Where was your so-called protection? You mean to tell me that you're going to risk your life for $15? Girl, this village ain't nothing to play around with. They got some crazy men around here that is killing up young girls like you. And one of them cuts their titties off. Girl, as far as I can see, that young boy Ronnie don't want to be nothing but a pimp. He ain't done one thing to earn that money. You better start to use your head. I could see Miss Shirley knew what she was talking about, but what am I going to do, Miss Shirley? You know how hard it is to find a job? Don't worry, honey. I'll come up with something. The next day, when I went down to the lobby, Freddie was behind the desk. I hear you're looking for a job, he said. Uh-huh. You know anything about being a barmaid? No, I told him. Well, you go over to this place, Tony's, on 3rd Street, and ask for a guy named Chuck. Tell him I sent you. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I went over to Tony's and talked to Chuck. Do you have any openings, I asked him. Sure. We always have openings for foxes like you. He laughed. Do you know the setup? No. $15 a night. And you get a quarter for each drink and a dollar for each bottle of champagne. I looked at him blankly. Your job is to sit and look pretty and keep the customers happy and buying. You work from 8 in the evening to 4 in the morning when the place closes. What you do after that is your business. Just don't make any deals on the premises. Yes, I answered warily. Well then, see you tonight. When I got back to the hotel, I told Miss Shirley about my new job. All right, honey, but you be real careful. There are a whole lot of crazy people around here, and you keep looking for a real job so you can go to school at night. Now, come on upstairs and let me show you how to put your face on. You look like a two-bit hoe. At ten to eight, I was at Tony's. Chuck was there and introduced me to the barmaid. Her name was Joyce. Come here for a minute, honey, she told me, and went to the end of the bar. I followed her. You like whiskey sours? I guess so. I never had one. Whatever you do, don't get drunk. I'm going to make your drinks without the whiskey. If a customer come in and I know he's the suspicious type, I'll make you a real one. If you want a drink with the whiskey in it, just order with your hands folded. There's not too much I can do about the champagne. I'll try to keep pouring it into the man's glass, but it's not too bad and the bottles are small. Okay. Thanks. I went to the bar and sat down. In a few minutes, a couple of white guys came in. They sat two seats down from me and kept looking in my direction. Would you like a drink? One said. Okay, I answered. What are you drinking? A whiskey sour. And so began what seemed like a never-ending parade of whiskeyless whiskey sours. It got so that even the smell of the stuff made me sick. Once in a while, I would ask the barmaid to put some whiskey in one, but I have never been much of a drinker. Most of the customers were white men who were looking for some action. I found most of them to be crude, boring, and creepy. I would sit there, 
making up different stories to tell them just to keep myself amused. Another object of those stories, of these stories, was to get them to spend as much money as possible. If I thought that the man would go for a sob story and and hand over some money, I would tell him a real tearjerker. Other times, I pretended to be a college girl going to NYU. This made them less likely to be bold. When I played a college girl, I usually said I was a math major because people never know the first thing about math. One night, though, after I told this guy my math major story, he asked me some questions about integrals and imaginary numbers. (laughs) I didn't have the faintest idea what the guy was talking about. It turned out he taught math at NYU. I know you're lying, he told me. Of course I am. Who in the hell is going to be interested in the life of a waitress? The guy broke out laughing. That deserves a drink, he said. Bring the lady another drink. After that, the guy, I called him Mr. Math, came by every so often to hang out. He would buy drinks, and we would sit there cracking jokes. How's your thesis going, he would ask. Fine, I'd answer. I'm doing a chronological study about the social significance of two and two equals four. I had a few other regulars. Most of them came to tell me their troubles. They either had wife trouble or job trouble. Some were drunks who just wanted somebody to drink with, and others just liked the challenge of trying to seduce a young girl. A lot of the other girls were prostitutes. The few who weren't were either just out to make some extra money, or they were alcoholics. Most of the women were very nice and protective of me. The prostitutes liked me because I was always sending them business, and was always discreet about it. Soon, I made friends with the guys in the jazz quartet that worked there regularly. I've always loved jazz, and I would clap and shout and let them know I enjoyed the music. The piano player and I became especially tight. I called him my big brother, and he was very protective of me. When the place closed, he and maybe one or two of the group would walk me home. If it was raining, he would send me home in a cab. Closing time was the roughest time of all. Some of the men thought that buying drinks entitled them to more than conversation, but Chuck was a good bouncer and could spot a problem before it became serious. If a guy was getting out of hand, Chuck would approach him, telling him that I was the sister of one of the guys in the band and that if he didn't treat me with respect, he would let him have it. At times, some real freaks and weirdos hung out there, There was one guy who had bought the panties of almost every woman who worked at Tony's, paying them each $15. I asked him what he did with them. He laughed and told me he hung them on the walls of his apartment. When I told one of the other girls, she laughed. Girl, you believe that? That guy takes them home and holds them over his nose. He's a sniff freak. But any woman at Tony's had to be careful. Some of the men who came around were real dangerous. On nights when things were slow and there were no customers in the place, the women would tell horror stories about all the crazy men they had run into. I was big for my age and well-built and with all the makeup I wore, I could usually pass for 18. I told everybody I was 19. The white people never questioned my age, but the black people would. Sooner or later, realizing I was younger than I let on, some of them even guessed I had run away and would take me to the side and encourage me to go home. 
After a while, all the women who worked at the place teased me about not having a boyfriend. This girl don't like men, and she don't like women. Here's a girl that lets her fingers do the walking. When they teased me, I wanted to crawl into a crack somewhere and hide. The more embarrassed I became, the more they laughed. A new bass player came to work for the band, and I developed an instant crush on him. I was convinced I was in love. In a short time, everybody knew about my crush, but the bass player played me no mind at all. I did everything I could think of to attract his attention, but he just ignored me. Near closing time, his white girlfriend would come, and they would leave together. I hated her. She looked so smug. One weekday night, it was pouring rain outside, and the place was empty. The bass player said to me, I'm writing a song for you. You want to hear it? I could have fainted. I was grinning from ear to ear. Yes, I'd like to hear it. Da, 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 da. Da 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 de 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 jail bait. Da 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 de 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 jail bait. The rest of the group chimed in, jail bait, jail bait, and the whole place cracked up. I could have died right then and there. That was the end of my crush. When I thought about it later, though, it was funny. A lot of the black men that I met at the village, in the village, were hung up on white women. Some of them would come right out and tell you, Man, I can't dig no spade, chick. Give me an old fay every day. When I asked them why, they said white women are sweeter. Black women are evil. White women are more understanding. Black women are more demanding. One of the things that really infuriated me was when they called black women sapphire. You know how you nigger women are? Sapphire evil. A lot of these guys would have trampled over my face just to get to a white woman. At times, I really got sick of being around so many grown people. I'd rather sneak back into my old neighborhood or hang out with Pat and Ronnie. One night, they were going to a party uptown. I was dying to be with kids my own age, so I told Chuck I was taking the night off. When we got to the party, it was dull and tired. So, Pat and Ronnie went off to find some reefer. They loved the stuff, but I was scared of it. I waited and waited for them to get back. I started to talk to a boy who seemed really nice about how dull the party was. He said he knew of a boss party that was going on, going to be happening later. I waited for Pat and Ronnie to come back, but they never did. Why don't you come to the party with me, the boy asked. It's at my house, and I'm sure you'll have a good time. Finally, I said I would go. He seemed so nice. He lived in some projects near Spanish Harlem. When we got to his house, no one was there. I started to leave, but he said his friends were all at a ball game and they would be there afterward. In a little while, the doorbell rang, and sure enough, all these people came in. After a minute, I noticed they were all boys. Excuse me, the boy said. Then they all went into another room for a minute. When they returned, they were whispering and talking under their breaths, and I couldn't, and I could tell they were up to something. Where are the girls, I asked. Oh, they're coming. One came and sat next to me. He put his hand on my leg. I moved it away. Come on, baby. Why you want to act like that? Come here, man, one of them said. I could sense that something was wrong. I didn't know what they were up to, 
but I knew they were up to something. I picked up my pocketbook and my sweater. I'll have to be going. No, baby, you ain't going nowhere. I gotta go. I started walking toward the door. One of them grabbed my arm and yanked me away from the door. Sit your ass down, bitch. We got plans for you. I knew it now. They were going to rape me. I had heard people talking about trains, but I had never thought it would happen to me. I sat still for a minute. Then I made a wild break for the door. They tried to grab me and I fought like hell. The fight didn't last too long, though, because in a minute they had me held down on the floor. They were pulling up my skirt and taking my blouse off. I cried and screamed, shut up, bitch, one of them said, slapping my face. I begged them for mercy. I told them I was a virgin. There's always a first time, baby, someone sneered. I begged and pleaded. I cried and cried. I couldn't believe they could be so heartless, but they were. The boy who brought me there was arguing with another boy about who would be first. I couldn't believe it. It was a nightmare. They were arguing and carrying on as if I wasn't even human, as if I was some kind of thing. I felt so scared and betrayed. I had trusted this boy. The argument between them was heated. I hoped they would fight and kill each other. I kept begging for mercy, pleading with them. They paid me no attention. One of them came over to me as if he felt sorry for me. Don't worry, baby. It won't hurt. You'll see. You'll like it. Okay, I heard the boy who had brought me there say, you can go first, man. And the other boy started toward me. I jumped up and tried to run, but I was cornered. One tried to grab me, and in the process, he knocked over an ashtray. Be careful, man, said the boy whose house it was. My mother will kill me if this house gets messed up. That was my cue. I picked up a vase and threw it at the wall. I picked up a lamp and something else, crying and screaming at the same time. You might get me, but I'm going to mess up your mother's house before you do. The boy who was supposed to go first made a leap for me and missed. I kicked over the table and knocked over a plant that was on the stand. Get back! Get back! I screamed. The boy whose house it was grabbed the boy who was supposed to go first. Come on, man. My mother's going to kill me. Get back! Get back! I screamed. I'm going to throw this lamp straight into that mirror. There was a big mirror hanging behind the couch. Get them out of here. Get them out of here or I'll fuck this house up. I was shaking and crying, but I was serious as hell. I was going to mess that boy's house up so bad no one would recognize it. Get them out of here, I said, kicking the table over. Come on, the boy said. Y'all got to get out of here. My mother's going to have a fit. You crazy bitch, one of them said to me. Come on, let's jump on her, man. She can't do that much damage. It's the man's house, one of the others said. Come on, let's go. Get him out of here, I screeched at the top of my lungs. That's okay, one of them said. We'll wait for you outside, baby. Slowly, in what seemed forever, they what they left. Only the boy who had brought me remained. I could see that he was trying to figure out some way to jump me. Don't come near me. You better stay back. I didn't know what I was going to do next. They were all waiting for me outside. I couldn't call the police because the police were looking for me. Get back, I told the boy, who looked like he was trying to ease up close to me. All right, get away from the door. I still had the lamp and something else in my hands. Get back there, I told him, indicating the back of the apartment, or I'll smash your whole house up. 
When he moved back, I looked through the peephole. There was nobody in the hallway. They must be waiting downstairs, I thought. All right, I yelled. Get over by the door. He moved to the door. Now, get out in the hallway and knock on one of your neighbor's doors and bring a grown-up back here. What? You heard me, sucker. Now move. It wasn't my idea. I didn't want to do it. I had to. I don't want to hear that shit. Just get your ass out in that hall or I'll mess up your whole house so bad your mother won't even think it's her house. Please, the boy said. Please, my ass, I screamed. If you don't get out there and knock on one of those doors, you can forget about your mother's house. He went outside into the hallway. I slammed the door after him and watched through the people as he knocked on a door. A lady answered and I opened the door and started begging her to help me. Please, miss, please help me. They're trying to get me, I screamed, crying all over again. I still had the lamp in my hand. Please walk me downstairs to the subway or to a cab. What happened, honey? She asked. They tried to do it to me, I cried. The woman looked at me and then at the boy. You wait there for a minute, honey, she said. Then she and her husband came out. Don't worry, nothing's going to happen to you now. They brought me downstairs and put me into a cab. I thought a lot about those boys after that night. I hated them. But what I couldn't understand is why they hated me so much. Everybody was always saying what a dog-eat-dog world it was. There were all kinds of people in the world and most of them seemed unhappy. Everybody seemed to be in their own bag and few seemed to care about anybody else. I had read this play by Sartre. The play ended with the conclusion that hell is other people and for a while I agreed. Back then, when I was growing up, boys gang banging or gang raping a girl was a pretty common thing. They called it pulling a train. It didn't happen to any particular kind of girl. It happened to girls who were at the wrong place at the wrong time. The boys talked about it like it was a joke or a game, like they were only out to have some fun. If a girl was caught on the wrong side of a park or in the wrong territory or on the wrong street, she was a target. It was a common thing back then for boys to downgrade girls and cuss at them in the street. It was common for them to go to bed with girls and talk about them like dogs the next day. It was common for boys to deny they were the fathers of their babies, and it was common for boys to beat girls up and knock them around. And then the girls would get hard too. If the nigga ain't got no money, I don't want to be bothered. If the nigga ain't got no car, then later for him. The more I watched how boys and girls behaved, the more I read and the more I thought about it, the more convinced I became that this behavior could be traced directly back to the plantation. When slaves were encouraged to take the misery of their lives out on each other instead of on the master, the slave masters taught us we were ugly, less than human, unintelligent, and many of us believed it. Black people became breeding animals, studs and mares. 
A black woman was fair game for anyone at any time, the master or a visiting guest or any redneck who desired her. The slave master would order her to have six with this stud, seven with that stud, for the purpose of increasing his stock. She was considered less than a woman. She was a cross between a whore and a workhorse. Black men internalized the white man's opinion of black women, and if you ask me, a lot of us still act like we're back on the plantation with Massa pulling the strings. After my close call uptown, I became more skeptical of everybody. I was much more careful about the situations that I let myself fall into. I would talk to the men at Tony's, but more and more I became strictly business. The more I saw of street life, the uglier it was. One day, as I was walking down 8th Street, I saw one of my aunt's friends. Her name was Abby or Addie or something like that, and she was big as a truck. I turned my head hoping she wouldn't recognize me. Joey, Joey, I heard her cry out. I kept walking. She kept calling. I kept walking. Then I felt her grab my arm. I know you, she said. You're Joey. Your aunt and your mother are worried to death about you. I don't know what you're talking about, I said. My name is Joyce, and I don't know you or anyone else that you're talking about. Come off it, Joey, she said. You're not fooling me. Come with me while I call your aunt. She had my arm in an iron grip. I thought of making a run for it, but she was too big to play with. She took me to some bar and told me to sit at the counter while she made the call. As soon as she started dialing, I made a beeline for the door. She was right on top of me, grabbing me with that iron grip. You're not going anywhere until your aunt gets down here. In half an hour, Evelyn was on the scene, throwing questions at me left and right. Where have you been? What have you been doing? Where have you been staying? What have you been doing for money? How have you been eating? She asked, and a million questions more. When Evelyn questioned me, she sounded like a lawyer cross-examining a witness. In about an hour, I had broken down and told her everything. She demanded that I take her to the hotel where I was staying. After I had packed my things, she told the guy behind the desk, Do you know that you've had a 13-year-old girl staying here? I could have you prosecuted for contributing in the delinquency of a minor. The guy looked at me like he just couldn't believe it. I could have crawled under the floor. Then she called up Tony's and told him the same thing. I was dying of embarrassment. But in a way, I was glad it was over. I was getting tired of the streets. I was tired of being grown. And I wanted to be a kid again.